0: Following the Lord it is indispensable. Amen. So I want to make sure: is there anything else on your hearts at this time that you need to say? If the Lord's leading, it's not out of place. Amen. If anyone here, if you need to seek the Lord, even as I'm up here speaking, seek Him. Amen. You can come up here and pray. If I still feel like it, I'll keep preaching. You can pray. You don't have to wait till I'm finished. I don't know um, if you realize what a privilege it is to be able to speak to you out of the fullness of my heart instead of just feeling burdened to um, preach a message that needs to be preached to address problems or sin or um, things that the congregation needs to know. It's a rare privilege to get to just talk to you from my heart. Just give me a minute. I want to read you something. Um, My girlfriend's back in Tennessee and I wrote her a letter last night and and took a picture of it and sent it to her uh, by text. So kind of old-fashioned, new-fashioned at the same time. I want to read it to you. I addressed it to her and I said, um, For the last few years, especially for the past year in particular, I've been really compelled to examine the religious practices around me, including the religious traditions that I was raised around, to compare those against the light of the truth found in Scripture and the witness of the Holy Spirit. What I found is on one extreme cold formality, and on the other extreme, fanatic exuberance. It seems to me that in religion as well as in life, the truth is often somewhere in the middle of the two extremes, and in religion especially, the truth is accompanied by an inward witness in my own spirit of the authenticity of what I am observing and experiencing, so much of what I've observed in churches recently, especially among some missionary Baptist churches, seems to be far more tradition than authentic worship. The words sometimes sound similar, but the witness in my spirit is absent. In both services today, and in the fellowship, I walked away with one main conclusion. These people are the real deal. I can't really describe it in words, But as I got to know them and worshipped with them and heard their testimonies, that was the theme that kept coming back deep in my spirit. These people are real. A man named Paul, 80 years old, stood with joy and tears thanking God for saving him last July. A woman named Tisha, who's 35 years old, stood and thanked God for saving her soul about a year ago as well. She said, even though I have cancer, I couldn't be more blessed. And I talked to a young lady after church named Emily, who's 19 years old, who lost her mother to cancer and was raised in an abusive home by her father. She was in different foster homes, but she found peace with God at a summer camp when she was 15. And she told me... I've been to every church here, and none of them are like this one. These people are real. What a blessing it has been this week. I was writing this Sunday night. What a blessing it's been this week to be among people who are so authentic. Please keep praying for me this week to be used of the Lord. Uh, So that's my heart tonight and what I've experienced. You can't fake the real thing. And unfortunately, so much of the religious world, even so much of the people who claim to be the people of God, are going through the motions without any real substance underneath. And you know what? You know the difference. You feel the difference. You know when you go among a group of people, even if they use the same exact words, sing the same exact songs, have the same exact order of service, you know when that service is authentic and when it's put on. You know the difference. And for the comfort of your flesh, you might deceive yourself for a little while and go to a place that's not like that and try to convince yourself it is. But you know what? When you go home at night and you're alone with the Lord, you know the difference. And I'm not calling out any particular group or denomination because what I'm talking about back home, I've seen in missionary Baptist church after missionary Baptist church who we consider like faith and order where you go in and it's all routine and empty. You feel the difference. I leave the services and I go home almost sad that I went. Because so often the people are going through the motions of something they saw their grandparents do and it's not from a place of sincere love for God in their hearts. It's like it was written in, in, the, uh, in Revelation to the church <coughs> who was told, you've lost your first love. I don't think that applies here. And thank God for that. You know, this church, there's nothing wrong with with the setting, the building, so I I hope you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I've been in plenty of buildings that are even more comfortable. Have uh, even more comfortable settings. and Maybe have a really nice sound system or beautiful lights or brand new bathrooms. All this stuff that makes people comfortable. And when you walk out, you still know whether the substance of the service was real or not. This church, as I said, don't take this the wrong way, but it's not as beautiful as some places, and it's not as comfortable as some places. And and to be honest, a lot of you have hard lives. A lot of you deal with stuff in your lives. You know what that means, what that tells me is, you're closer to understanding the truth of the reality of the human existence than most religious people are. (sighs) Religious people who have on their nice clothes all the time, and I'm wearing a a, a tie, so I'm not trying to be critical there either. But what I mean is I don't feel any better wearing this. I preached on Tuesday night in a pair of shorts. It's not about what you wear. And people who put their trust in anything other than Jesus are mistaken. There's a reason, and I think I quoted this, there's a reason that Paul said, I'm persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor height nor depth nor any other thing, things present, things in the future, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I want to talk about that for a minute. And by the way, none of this I studied. It's not in any kind of notes. I'm just following what I feel in my heart. Because my heart is full tonight. Jesus tells us through Brother Paul that a way was made that everybody who comes to Him, the ones that He knew in eternity past, who would be saved, and I want to be clear, I don't believe God predestined people for heaven and for hell. That's not clear in script that is not taught in scripture. It's clearly not taught in scripture. What we see in scripture is whosoever will may come and take of the water of life freely. What we see in scripture is Jesus Christ made a way. He paid the debt of sin. He lifted or made provision for the curse over the whole earth to be lifted all of creation groans together, be delivered even until now, there's coming a day when the very curse that is upon nature because of Adam and Eve will be lifted and we will see this earth as God intended it to be. Without sin, without brokenness, without the corruption that we caused. Until that day, Jesus has made a way. When He came and died, this was in the provision of God, the determined counsel of God From the very beginning, I think before time, God met within his own uh, person and recognize what would happen when He created humanity and that there would come a time when man through his own choice would choose to sin and there would have to be provision made to forgive his sin. God knew even back then that the sin that we would commit would be so abhorrent in His eyes and so bad and so damaging and so damning. He knew that it would take a person who was perfect to pay for it. And He knew that none of us ever would be that. So he knew he would have to give his son to pay for the sins of the entire world. Jesus Christ died. Now, he was a man of infinite worth. He was a man with no sin. And he died the death of a criminal. As if he were a man of sin, but he wasn't. What that did when he died was made atonement... He was the final blood sacrifice, as we see in Hebrews, that uh, the sacrifices that were made year after year could never make the comers there too perfect or else they would have ceased to be offered. But every year when those sacrifices were made, there was a remembrance again of sin. But Jesus Christ, the last sacrifice, came and laid down His life and shed His perfect blood and never again does anything else have to be sacrificed because He has made a way to appease the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for all who would trust Him. Now here's where a lot of religion gets it wrong. They say, well, Jesus has already done all that needs to be done. (laughs) Jesus has done what He could do. What He could do is offer a perfect sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and make atonement. What He can't do, Jesus cannot repent for you. God commands all men everywhere to repent. I I want you to hear me on this. You are commanded to repent. You don't have to feel some kind of warm feeling inside. or You don't have to feel it. You're commanded to repent. And when you come to a place of recognizing that you need to repent, that is God showing you that that's what you need to do. And you will not receive the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus until you repent to the satisfaction of God. That's right. That's what happens when a person is saved by the grace of God. Jesus Christ has paid the, 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 the price for our sin, but we don't receive the benefits of it until we actually repent. And then it is as if, this is metaphorical, it's as if God takes His blood and applies it to our heart so that when the death angel passes over, just like at the Passover, He will pass over us. A way has been made, but you don't benefit from it until you do what God has commanded. And God has commanded all men, women, children, everywhere to repent. Now... Those of you who are are missionary Baptists or raised in this way, you might say, well, Brother Josh, what about the age of accountability? (sighs) You know what? I'm not worried about that. Let me tell you why. Because a child who's not yet accountable, I can preach like this, and they're not going to be bothered. They're not even going to know. They're just going to hear words that go in their head for later. Because until God opens their eyes, let me prove it to you. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. I talked about them briefly last night. They were walking around naked. They didn't know there was anything wrong with it. They had one rule. God said, you can eat of everything in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule. Every time I come across somebody who believes some version of religion that you can be good enough to merit God's favor and make Him happy, I always say, Adam and Eve, who actually started perfect... I mean, you don't even know what that's like. They actually lived part of their lives without sin. They were actually created in a world without sin. And God gave them one rule. The only thing I require of you is not to eat this one fruit. One rule. Obedience. It's really the same for us now. Except with them, it was um, epitomized in this one fruit. One rule. Well, we know what happened. They ate of it. Their eyes were open. God had told them, "On the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die." The serpent came to Eve and told her, "Has God said that you will die?" He says, "You'll not surely die. You'll become as gods." He put a spin on the truth. They did become as God in a way. They saw the evil that they were protected from before. Their eyes were opened. They made these fig leaf dresses, this clothing to cover up their nakedness. God came down to dwell with them in the cool of the evening. He says to walk with them in the afternoon. I don't know if He assumed bodily form and walked with them or if His Spirit was just present moving with them. I don't know. But the point is, before they ate of the fruit, they walked with God with unobstructed fellowship. I mean, complete fellowship with no distraction. And as soon as they partook in sin willfully, their eyes were opened, they were ashamed, and God said to them, what are you doing? Adam said, we're hiding because we're afraid. He said, who told you you were naked? (laughs) How'd you know? Have you eaten of the tree? I love how God asked him questions to make him answer the truth for himself. He doesn't come even then with accusation. Did you eat that tree I told you not to eat? Yes. And then they were cast out. Now, that is a picture of what accountability is like. When you're a child, you're under God's protection. You're innocent, just like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And there comes a time when your eyes are open to sin, the eyes of your heart. And when that happens, you recognize, I'm not okay. You see your sinfulness, and you have a desire to hide from God. When that happens, you're responsible. That's what we call the age of accountability. And when that happens, now you have to repent. And if you don't, and you continue not repenting, and then you die before you ever get a chance to really repent, you will go to hell. What does that mean? Is this place God didn't make for humans. It's a place to torture the enemy of God. Lucifer, who was cast out of heaven for trying to take God's glory, for rebelling against the glory of the creator of the universe. And now people have to go there because they also refuse To surrender to God. Until that time happens, until God opens your mind and your heart, you're okay. When he opens your mind and heart. I told y'all last night that happened for me when I was nine. And I was at church minding my own business one minute, and the next minute I was terrified. When God deals with you, you'll know it'll be similar. You'll suddenly be responsible. God's made a way through Jesus Christ that once this happens, once we recognize that we're separated from Him, we have an opportunity to surrender. Last night I preached about this. This, this is what I want to get to it before I close my message. I preached about this field and how there is... Uh, treasure hidden underneath and the man heard about it. And for some reason, he trusted that what he was told was true. He went and sold everything he had so he could buy this field and get the treasure. And if you read just a little bit after that, there's another parable. This is Matthew 13, uh, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, or fine pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Both of these examples, the people sell everything they have, and they buy it. We're told in the 33rd verse, a little earlier in this chapter, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven is an agent that makes flour rise, if, if you don't know that. Which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. Jesus is giving several examples of what his kingdom is like. In one case, he's saying it's like leaven, meaning... What you spread around to people is going to influence everyone. And that's why it's so important, as I have said, and Brother Jason has said in the beginning of service, it's important that you follow the Lord in these services because it leavens the whole service. The whole, all the people will be lifted up to be able to praise God if we follow Him. That's part of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's also like this man who bought, sold everything he had to buy this field for the treasure underneath. And like this man, now let's think about him for just a moment. He's a merchant man who buys fine pearls and he, that means he knows. He's a purveyor of pearls. He understands uh, what's a good pearl, what has little tiny inclusions, what's not perfect, what's not the best, the, the color variations. He understands all of it. He has spent his life studying pearls. And somehow he finds out about this pearl that is worth more than all the pearls he's ever bought in the whole world. It's the very same for you today. And some of you have testimonies that have talked about this. There came a time for some of you, very specifically, where you realized that everything you'd been taught about religion, all the pearls you had uh, been given... You realize there was one pearl of great price that was of incomparable value and that you would let go of everything you knew your whole life just to have that. That's what this that's what this is talking about. And so I want to ask you again what I tried to ask you last night. I don't know if I used these words, but do you really want to know the truth? Both of these parables, the, the uh, treasure under the field and the pearl of great worth, this is both talking about a person in the parable recognizing how much truth is worth. And I want to ask you, even if you're already saved, even if you're a member of this church, is the truth important enough to you that you would let go of everything else you rely on just to have it? I believe there are people here who feel that way. I think that's part of why my heart felt moved to write that letter. That these people are real. And even sitting in this room, those of you who might not be as real as the ones that I noticed, you know if you're not. You know if you're going through the motions and just trying. You know if you're still hanging on to all the other pearls from the past that you need to let go of to have the one pearl that's worth it all. You know. So what is the truth worth to you? What would you give to have it? Jesus taught us, John... uh, I want to read a few verses from John 16. We're talking about truth. Both of these parables are trying to help us understand what truth is. And the beginning of the message, all that that I was talking about that, that I didn't really plan on, the Lord planned on it. And that is the beginning of the truth of how you come to know Him. I'll finish up the rest of it before I'm finished with this message. John 16, verse 7. Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and it's not going to be long until He dies. And He says to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient... For you that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, can we pause here for a moment? These people have been walking, some of them for three years, with God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us who is the radiance of the very image of God and the beauty of His person, who is everything in the Trinity of God expressed in the form of a man. They've been walking with Him and He's telling them, I have to leave because what I'm sending you is even better. How incomprehensible. What could be better than the Son of God walking in physical flesh among us that we can touch and taste of the Word of Life, that which we've seen with our eyes and touched with our hands? As one of the brothers wrote. He says, I have to go away. If I don't, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. But if I do depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Jesus is describing the function of his Holy Spirit as he operates in this life. When he comes, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Of sin because they have not trusted upon me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you won't see me anymore, of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. He said, I have many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, he shall show it unto you. What are we talking about? As I was talking earlier in this message, there comes a time when you pass from your childish innocence to a place of recognizing that God is separate, different, greater, better, more majestic, and everything else better than you. And basically, depending on your age and your awareness, it might be as simple as this. You just recognize God's different than I am. I'm not like God, and I need Him. If you're older and you've done a lot more sin, you might recognize a lot more about it. The Holy Spirit works inside of you to show you your nakedness and your brokenness and to show you you need to be clothed with righteousness from on high, from heaven. What does it take? It takes recognizing your sinfulness. The Holy Spirit comes to convict. I remember being taught when I was a child that... That bad feeling that you feel from God before you know Him, that's actually His love. And the problem is, you're not in the condition to receive His love like He wants you to be able to receive it. It feels like brokenness. It hurts. It feels like pain in that condition because light doesn't have any fellowship with darkness. And when you're not of God, when you're not His child yet, you're full of darkness. This isn't popular to say today, but... Um, I love the way C.S. Lewis put it when he talks about a person who's not saved yet. He said, Fallen man is not simply a creature in need of improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms, his weapons. And whether you're nine years old or 90 years old, if you haven't repented to God, you're trying to do good things for Him, you might as well be a rebel fighting for an opposing army. You can't do good things for God until you actually become His child. Amen. The way you become His child is so simple. We make it complicated. Even when I tell my testimony, I tell you I was lost for five years and then the day I was saved I prayed for like four or five hours. That was my fault. That was my fault. Do you know how simple it is to be saved? When you recognize that there's something missing inside of you, go to God with everything inside of you and give it to Him. Surrender. That's what repentance really is. Oh, it's being sorry, and it's and it's and it's coming to God and 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 being broken. It's all of those things, but at the foundation of true repentance is a desire for God to have His way. He's the offended party. He's the one who has to make atonement. He's the one who has to forgive. And you come to Him and say, "Lord, uh, whatever you want, whatever words it may come out of your mouth." In that way, the condition of your heart is unconditional surrender. That's right. That's when salvation comes, you realize you're an enemy of God. No matter how good you are, no matter how many good things you've done, until the light of God comes into you through the Holy Spirit and He forgives you of your sins, He washes you, and you feel that new feeling and that new birth, that peace that comes in knowing Him. Until you have that, you don't know Him. That's not popular to talk about today. Today. But let me tell you, there's I'll put it this way. I've heard it said and maybe I said it last night. Maybe you don't think this is real. Maybe, uh, Maybe what I'm saying doesn't make sense in your mind. Maybe it's different than everything you've ever been taught. I believe God is so big and so powerful and so mighty, He can speak to you personally, individually, directly what is the truth and what He wants from you. Don't listen to me. You don't agree with me, go home. You're listening to this recording later, you're in this building, go home. After you hear it and ask God, show me what's true. Is that preacher crazy? Is what he's talking about crazy? He'll show you. And if he lets you know I'm crazy, tell me. Because I don't want to be. But I know I'm not. Because it's deeper than words, it's deeper than logic. And so many of you who have experienced the same kind of saving grace of God, the authenticity in your testimonies, the sincerity in your worship, the passion in your lives, that you can literally say, whether I live or die, I'm the Lord's, I'm not worried about it. You can't fake that. I'm not saying I can see into men's hearts, I can't. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing and the dividing asunder of soul and flesh, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God, the Logos, is Jesus Christ. He's the one who sees to the deepest thoughts of your heart. I can't do that. I'm not pretending I can. But I will tell you that many times I meet a person, and what they're saying, oh man, I feel it so deep inside. I have a friend at work, Different background, different religious background. And she really grew up at church at all. And she told me one day she found out I was a preacher. And she said, hey, come upstairs and talk to me uh, on break. And so I did. And she told me about when she found the Lord. She said, I was in high school. I was at a field party. I don't know if you'll have those out here. But basically you get together at a football field or wherever just get drunk. And uh, she said, I had a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. And she said, I don't really know why. But these two guys came up. One of them was videotaping. the other one said... Uh, I'm going to get down and pray and he was taping it and she was thinking what in the world are you doing? This is so weird and she said but all of a sudden she said I don't know what I was even doing but I found myself down in the mud praying and she said it was like God took off blinders where I could see for the first time and she says feeling came over me like I'd never felt and I had peace And I realized I knew God. And then she said, I went from that knowing nothing about religion. And she said she would go and talk to people and they wouldn't understand. And she said, I would want to just shake them and be like, no, don't you get it? He loves you so radically. (laughs) Oh man, I love meeting people who are the real deal, who aren't flattened out by religion. Who cares what words she was using? was Real. I told Brother Sister Stotler, we're talking uh, Sunday, about a man that that I met uh, at my work who lost everything, all his wealth, his family, his wife, he lost everything, ended up in prison, an addict. He was on his face in a puddle of tears at the very rock bottom crying out to God. He said he got up, looked down at the tears. There were that many on the floor. And he said it was like God was playing my life before me in that puddle. And then he gave me peace and he said that was your old life. Now you're a new man. You leave that behind. When he told me that, it went in my heart. I said this is real. You can't fake that. When I was in Guatemala, I met a lady who was diagnosed with cancer and they told her and her father didn't yet know the Lord. They were raised in Catholicism and down there, Brother Edgar, who's still there at New Life Church there in Coban, Guatemala, he told me, you know, the way I was raised were all about celebrations and getting drunk in the streets. They have all these celebrations. He showed me pictures of all these people basically having a big party in the name of religion. Not really any different than paganism. They put some religious name on it. And he said, I don't really know anything about God. His wife was diagnosed with cancer. They believed she was going to die. He said, I went to pick out her tombstones. And God started dealing with me. He told about being saved. You can't fake that. She told the very same experience. They're telling it in Spanish, and I'm, I'm not fluent, but I heard enough that my spirit felt the truth of it even before the translator got done translating. And even the other brothers there, they same way. Oh, what they were saying. She talked about realizing that she was about to die and praying to the Lord. And first she was praying for to be spared for her own life, all these selfish things. And she said, then I got to a point where I didn't care about myself anymore. And I said, God... Whether I live or die, just take care of my family. That's when God saved her. You can't fake that. You can't fake the real thing. Those of you who are the real thing, you know. And I don't know. I don't know your hearts. Maybe there's some people here you think you're the real thing and maybe now you're realizing you're not. You know, I don't. You tell me you're saved. You're nice to me. I believe you. But deep down inside, you go home at night all alone. You know if you have peace or not. After God saved me, I've never yet been afraid of dying. Oh, I'm not excited about the pain. I don't like the idea of getting in a car wreck and suffering in a hospital or some, something like that. I'm really not afraid of dying. I'm not saying that loosely. I've been faced with it. I don't worry about where I'll go. This is real. So I want to ask you as I close, and I'm not even going to apologize if the message was scattered because I was speaking to you out of the fullness of my heart. The Lord knows. You know, Paul wrote earlier in that 8th chapter of Romans. Some of you have suffered. Some of you have gone through hard things. Some of you are going through hard things. We've all gone through some things that are hard if we're honest. I've gone through things in my life that to you it might not seem that hard, but to me it almost broke me. Almost destroyed me. You never know what will bring a person to their knees. Paul said, I reckon, I calculate, I have observed, I have concluded that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us I want you to know that glory is not just talking about someday in heaven. It's also talking about in this life. If you walk with the Lord, people will look at you and recognize the sufferings you're going through and wonder how you can still have a smile on your face. And I'm not talking about something fake. I'm fake. not saying fake it till you make it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being broken and honest and discouraged when you are, being human. And then somehow, through the grace of God, persevering, that is real and people know. It's more than a positive attitude. Oh, it's so much deeper than that. The sufferings of this present time. Listen, (laughs) everything we go through in this life, it is not even worthy to be compared with the glory of God inside of us right now. And if you're the real deal, you know that's true. You know it is. It is. Oh, no suffering of the flesh is pleasant for the moment, but what I'm telling you, if you really know God, you know it's worth it to go through whatever you have to to know Him. That's why Paul wrote what he did, that I might know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection being made conformable unto His death. David said, I've desired one thing of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might behold His beauty... I'm not quoting that exactly right, but that's the idea. Both of them, all they cared about, the man who had a heart after God's heart, David, and Paul, who before was Saul of Tarsus, who was breathing out persecutions, and then became one of the most fervent servants of the Lord. Both of them recognized that their whole lives, everything that they experienced, everything they did, all that mattered truly, was knowing God. I'm not sure if my mind even knows what this means Fully. But I'll tell you what my heart craves. I'll let go of anything else to know God. I don't care about anything else. That's how my heart feels. And the more I've desired that, the more challenges my life has had. And the sweeter my knowledge of the Lord has gotten. I'm not lifting myself up. I'm lifting up my Jesus. I'm telling you, actually knowing Him, you can't replace that with anything else. So what's the truth worth to you? I've tried to tell you the truth tonight. Maybe you already know the Lord. Maybe you've been waffling a little. Maybe you're, you're not completely sold out. You, you know how many Christians there are in the world who one day in a moment of desperation, surrendered, they were saved, and never again did they surrender their life to the Lord after that. I think they're some of the most miserable people around. There are so few Christians who really live a surrendered life. And so if you're saved, if you know you're saved, I want to ask you, what's the truth worth to you? What would you let go of to really walk with God? And if maybe you're not saved yet... What's the truth worth to you? Will you let go of your pride? Will you let go of your own uh, illusion of goodness? Will you let go of whatever you're relying on and surrender to the Lord? That's what it's going to take. Brother Jason said this at the end of the service last night, buy the truth and sell it not. There's a reason. The truth is more valuable than anything else in the whole world. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You want freedom? It starts with truth. And truth starts with recognizing that you're not enough. That you need someone bigger. And He's made a way. That's what I've tried to preach about tonight. This isn't some neat wrap-up ending, but I'm going to stop because I feel like I brought what I was supposed to.